ears do not deceive you, this is another episode of The Running of the Downstairs. That brings us to a total of seven, and I know, so soon after the last one, but I had him in the in the shoot, and uh, the world has shut down because of the virus, which I'm sure you are aware of, and you are at home, and you are looking for things to listen to, and I thought the least I could do is release something that I did six months ago. It's more work than you would think. At any rate, today's episode has David Dunbill. Dave is a good friend of mine. He is a director of film. He is a director of photography. He's a skateboarder extraordinaire. Um, and he and I had a really cool conversation about six months ago. So please accept my apologies for the slightly outdated uh, pop culture references. Um, it's a whole new world. Um, and we're going to talk about stuff that probably doesn't matter in the context of where we're all at right now. I hope you're great. I hope you're staying safe, and I hope you're feeling okay, and you're staying home. Enjoy this conversation, and we're going to be back at you hopefully sooner than later with some new ones, because what else we all got to do? Enjoy. Welcome back to the downstairs, uh, my audience of whoever is out there listening. Um, we haven't been around in, it's got to be, I think it's like six months since I recorded one, maybe a couple months since the last one came out. Um, not the same one, actually. Um, and we, yeah, we took a long break, which I think is on brand for this podcast of not uh, about how I don't do things and the people I know who do many great things. Um, and on that note, uh, my newest guest, the newest episode that we're doing here, uh, Mr. David Dunville, a good friend of mine and a camera man extraordinaire. Let's call him a director of just all the great camera stuff. I love that you introduced me as David. Dunville, and I think that that's it's it's fitting because I'm uh, I'm known to to everybody in Toronto as Dave Dunville, but uh, I don't think I've ever referred to you as David no, before. I, I just thought I wanted it's to a very it's a formal interview. I formal, want to give like, some gravitas. Yeah. yeah. No, it's it's good because I I uh, like I I grew up in like a super small town, and like David was what I was, and when I moved to Toronto, it was like just a flip of a switch. Suddenly, I was Dave, and that was it. So wait, hold on. You, you were you were David until you came here. Yeah, literally, so friends, family, it doesn't matter. Uh, yeah, including the friends that I that I'm I'm still like deeply in touch with on PEI. It's like all of them still to this day call me David, and it's just it feels normal. Like it, it doesn't feel it feels weird when they call me um, Dave. And they try to because that's, they know that that's how I'm. That's, that's so strange. I find because I my relationship like because I'm Joshua. That's on my birth certificate. If I'm in trouble, like no one, but there's no one yeah. that calls me Joshua except mm. for like people I like ironically doing it or mm. like that's their thing with me is they call me Joshua. Very rarely, it makes me uncomfortable to for someone to refer to me as it makes me uncomfortable for someone to refer to someone else as Joshua. I think it's more the perspective of like somebody that I've never met before refer to me as David. Because I feel that's when I'm in trouble or like that's when I'm reminded that my name is not David, it's Dave. And uh, it's like the people that know me really well, when they call me David, it's like when I call him Mike, I'm Michael. Uh, it's like, you know, hello, David. Hello, Michael. And we do it almost ironically. It's like, that, you know, it's not intentionally meant to like, yeah, this is your full name. But like, I, uh, 
it's funny. There was just a big shift, and like suddenly I was Dave, and I didn't like it at first. People would call me Dave because it was just easier, and I just always thought of it as like creepy Uncle Dave, you know, like Dave. Really? There's not a lot of fun Daves out there. Those, but like David really aren't all. I thought Dave was the fun version. No, of like David. Dave, Dave, like to me, like Dave has like a creepy sort of thing, like. So weird. I always Did think you know of, a creepy Dave. No, I don't. I don't. But like, I'm sure people do know a creepy Dave. But like, for me, it's like, um, you know, if I if I'm in trouble for something, it's David. My mom always calls me David. She still to this day calls me David, and I'm, and it's just comfortable because of that. I don't like it when my parents call me Dave. I know they're trying. Interesting. But like every, I just think of like Dave is just like a a shitty version of my own name. But it's just totally normal now always has been and it's weird now if somebody calls me david That's, so anyway we no no, no, no yeah. it's, I, I i'm actually way more interested probably than i should be in terms of like what like, we're here to for, your but... perspective of joshua and josh like i would never ever call you joshua do you call anyone joshua like i don't the anybody i know that goes by joshua i feel like should be wearing like a cravat the, you know like they're usually but that's wearing the perspective a that i have with david it's like anybody who's named David is like a biblical, it's a biblical name, you know, like it's, right? this is like a very formal, very, um, it's been, it's a very, it's, it's in the Bible many, many, many times. See, I never, I wouldn't think of it as a biblical name at all. See, okay, I'll give you, before we, before we move past names, let me ask you this, the most of your name yeah. in one room or in one job, like locate anywhere where you had, had to exist with other people regularly, how many Dave or Davids, what's the most? Um... So I know what you're getting at because we've worked with each other before and there's been scenarios where there's like four or five Joshes, four or five Daves. There were seven. When we met, there were seven, there were seven Joshes. Joshes. I was on a conference call at, at work and on the call were five Daves. Now, <laughs> were, they all, were they all Dave or were they... Dave. Amazing. Now, that said... Being on a conference call is much different than being in person. You know people by name. You can look at people in the eye when you address them. But when you're talking, people need to know your voice. And people don't necessarily know their voice. So you can't just say, hey, this is Dave. I have to say it's Dave Dunville. And funnily enough, and many people that you probably uh, know that are mutual friends of us, refer to me as my first and my last name. And I don't know if it's about like alliteration in general, but it's I've That's always true. been as far as anyone from where we came from, um, I've always been known as Dave Dunville before Dave or David. See, I think of you as Dunville. Like I, when I think of you specifically, I think Dunville, which is which is interesting. I I, I mean, because uh, my last name, I've never been particularly. I spelled your last name wrong for like six years. Everyone does. Yeah. Everyone does. It's E L. It's E L. Not L E. My my uncle. There's a story that I have never really heard, but there uh, apparently my grandfather had a brother potentially. Um, he came from like Russia, I think, like in the turn of the 19th century, like 1905 or whatever it was, yeah. like when he was a baby. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's no birth certificate, like no one ever really knew exactly how old he was. But I remember my uncle telling me the story that my uh, grandfather, when he when they came to Canada, there was a brother potentially, and that brother went one way, and and my grandfather went another, and they never saw each other again. But he was Ellie, and my grandfather was El, and that's where the 
And that's where the split happened. Yeah. And so I always wonder, like, am I related to all these Finkelmans? Which, actually, just because I just saw this this afternoon, because I may have Googled my name, not because I was looking, uh, <laughs> but I was trying to set up a Google alert for something else, and when you when you set it up, the first thing it shows you is, is what your name would look like on a Google alert. And so I, I clicked it because I'm a narcissist, I guess. And uh, the very first thing that popped up, and I may post this somewhere at some point, is there's a Josh Finkelman in the States, spelled E-L, um, whose claim to fame uh, is that he sued, and I didn't find out if he ever, if he won, because it was like he had just put the lawsuit in 2014, I think, when the article is from, he sued the NFL, a class action lawsuit over the cost of Super Bowl tickets. That was his, like, claim to fame, I guess. He was a lawyer or something, or just a douchebag in Jersey who was like, I don't want to pay $4,000 for, uh, for Super Bowl tickets, a class action lawsuit. I really should probably find out if he was successful or not, maybe have him on the podcast. I, um, I do have one related thing and I'm, we're gonna just we're gonna just go back and forth about this yeah. so after this we'll just move on to what you want to talk about <laughs> but I have one we'll last thing about my name so my name is n- is not um, super common my last name um, was kind of messed up a few times over the course of World War II okay. there's a lot of different spellings of my last name and my, my family chain doesn't really go too far back like it goes back but it's like it goes into northern Europe or and like just in general it's just sure. it I'm mess. just European just a, a mix of that um, Scottish Irish that sort of thing but I as I started my career in the industry I I, I was very much apparent on the internet and uh, all methods of social media as they appeared um, you know one of the first people on Instagram, one of the first people on YouTube, one of the first people on, on Facebook and, and Vine when it first came out, short-lived. Um, but my username was always Dave Dunville on everything. And that's how it is everywhere. And I know that like anybody listening that wants to creep on me at all uh, will know that my first and last name, Dave Dunville, is my username for literally everything, for PSN, for like for everything. So if you want to, basically he's saying he needs he needs. Uh, followers so, well, it's, at Dave Dunville. It's everywhere. just easy to follow me, um, and I kept it that way, and it was good. But I thought I'd search for like David Dunville and, and see if there's anybody else out there. And there is one guy, uh, David Dunville, um, and I think he lives in name states that start with V: Vermont, Virginia, Virginia. It's probably one of those states. I think that's it. It's probably not one of those states. North Virginia, South I, Virginia, I, I, too. I don't think so. We live in Canada, folks. Yeah. If you're listening to this yeah. from the States, you probably don't know where Toronto is. So. But he's clearly from a state somewhere. Right. There's 50 of them. And Give he's like take. in his 60s. <laughs> and I messaged him on Facebook and said, hey, man, it's your, you know, name buddy. <laughs> it's I, your name I'm neighbor. really sorry for being like the first two pages of Google because I did a lot of weird shit when I was a kid. <laughs> and... That shit lives on the internet forever. And when people search my name, they find me. Sure. But if people are searching for you, they're going to find me. <laughs> and they might get a little confused. And I'm really sorry. He never messaged me back. I bought all the you like all the domain names. I went on like that name search thing that, that searches and hunts for your username for all the accounts. And I bought them all up. Not bought them, but like signed up for all yeah. of the things. Everything that I could find with Dave Dunville or David Dunville. And I... Signed up for all of them so that I had them all. 
not that I was worried that this like mid sixties guy would uh, you think would this take dude, them. Do you think this dude's down there, like he just never, typing his name in, going like, Damn it. I just, I, I, I mean, maybe it's too late in life, but if this guy might have been like in his like early forties or something like that, it might have been different. But like right now, all I'm thinking of is this guy out there that is completely like impossible to find on the internet because i ruined it for him that's and it's amazing. like it's not unintentionally like, it's not like great content there's like videos of me throwing up there's videos of me super drunk wearing horse masks i was gonna say there All, is some good content don't don't sell yourself short <laughs> yeah i mean it's not quality um professional i mean there's i mean we're gonna talk about a whole bunch of that stuff because that's to that's, each their own that's but a I, lot of i it. do i do think that this guy is not represented well by my name and i i did i reached out to him and i said i can't hey, believe he didn't respond i'm sorry he didn't respond that's disappointing that I actually, said i did delete facebook so maybe he responded and i will never know but that's, all right i mean well i wonder maybe he's, this guy's sitting there in virginia like just googling his name every once in a while i mean like why can't it'd be I really funny david Dunville. it'd be really funny if he was listening to this podcast well the funny um speaking of that so my buddy dan who you know yeah um who is the first guest on this podcast um he is friends with five or six different dan gallias on uh on facebook really? i think he befriended oh, all of on them. facebook specifically yeah not in real not life just- um, well, uh, I guess in real life. I mean, Facebook's not, real life. Yeah, know? but I mean, like, not just randomly. No, no, no. Not, yeah, okay. He, but he, like, reached out and befriended. They yeah. all say happy birthday to each other on their birthdays and shit like it's that. Wild. Like, hey, Dan Galli. Like, it's yeah, just, yeah. it's really funny. Um, so, yeah, I think it, I, I think it's always, everybody wants to know who else has their name. Like, yeah. just the random lottery. But, um, good segue, because let's talk about some of that internet stuff. Because, sure. So, you got what, what those of you listening have to understand is Dave, um, when I met Dave, he was, how old were you? It was 10 years ago. So, you're how old now? I'm you're, 30 now, so I'd be 20. Okay. So, when I met Dave, he was this young kid who was just phenomenally talented, um, doing all these, like, crazy things. Phenomenally and, broke. Sure. But <laughs> broke for, but the, the thing that I was always interested in about you was that you were broke for, like, the right reasons. Like, sure. I was, you're, I'm 10 years older than you, so I was 30 at the time and like not in a good spot um also broke at the time but i was broke because like just bad spending and like all that sort of stuff right um you were broke because like you moved from pei and bought all this camera gear so like that's i think always been well film school as well was a bit of a (laughs) well you went to where'd you go to film school i went to the toronto film school when it was at like the international academy of design technology which went bankrupt was that the one on college in the big no this was at the cbc building um on the eighth floor and it was there for a long time and i was the second last graduating class from there really and then like iadt international academy of design technology went like full up that's crazy bankrupt. so you're you technically don't have an alma mater there um it toronto film school was bought by uh, yorkville university rcc institute okay um so my my actual like diploma or whatever has a different school on it than what I actually applied to, which is really bizarre. Uh, but it was like their way of getting around uh, a class asking a class action lawsuit of, you know, um, fair Trump University plethora <laughs> of students that were really upset that they didn't get their like diploma and they didn't get the quality of schooling they were promised, etc. There, there was a, there actually was a class action lawsuit about it. I didn't join in on it. Anyway, I mean, I went to York, so like, I don't know that I can really necessarily look down my nose at anyone. Yeah. Um, but that, but that was the thing. It was like you went to, so you spent all that money on on schooling, school, which... and uh, yeah, just like got to Toronto, and I didn't know anything, man. I mean, like, I think it's really important. We like 
talk exactly about the fact that I came from a town of like 750 people. That's wild. Like, like I'm the first plane ride, the first time I was ever on a plane was to move here and I had all my shit in two bags. And all right, we're let's talk yeah. about that because I'm curious. You're so you're MPEI, yeah. You're clearly a skateboard kid. For those if who I'm don't matter, don't know, don't know, Prince Edward Island is like this the tiniest province on on in Canada. I like that you assume that I have an audience that's that's bigger than uh, you know, bigger I mean, than people who don't know what I've PEI met is. A but. lot of people that don't know what the hell PEI is when you refer to it like that. So it looks like a li- it looks like a lima bean somewhere near between uh, between Nova Scotia and Newfoundland. No, yeah. isn't that right in that little nook? Nova Scotia. Uh, we're great. It's far from newfoundland but like yeah but it's in, on a map it's on the east coast of canada it's a province that's heavily overlooked it's very beautiful you should go there sometime let's continue so you're in this small you're in a town of 700 were you a like a movie kid from from time or did you no i mean i, I mean it all started from skateboarding i i like picked up skateboarding from my cousin who was big into action sports and stuff like that and at the time that was what it was called and you know i just followed kind of in his footsteps and started skateboarding all the time and i just wanted to shoot videos so we just did these little i had this little mini dv camera that my dad like let me use and we just shot all these like really dumb really bad videos and i would just sit for hours and edit between two vcrs you know trying to like cut things together and like doing all this stuff like capture it all and like cut on my computer and cut on vcrs and do all this it was just it was a lot of work yeah. for very little result. And there's a lot of embarrassing videos of me when I was a kid doing all this um, shitty editing. And So um, are we talking narrative stories or are you doing like skateboard videos? Skateboarding like, videos. So are you the kid like whenever I, I walk by a bunch of like a, you know, a skate, an area in the city where like they're doing their, you know, the good for, you know, ollies. I'm a big skateboarder. Yeah. Um, and uh, you always see the one kid on a skateboard drifting backwards like or or coasting next to the kid who's doing like the the stunts that was you though uh, on the or were you what's doing funny stunts? is what's funny is and it, it's still today like the same thing the same thing i'm kind of like I, I would say plagued with is i don't have any good video of me and that's not to say that like i have oh, sorry i mean like i do have good video of me when i when i bring on like my my friends that are talented with shooting and stuff like that but like growing up it was like I used to shoot these epic videos of my friends and then there would never be an epic video of me skateboarding. All my like sponsor me tapes and stuff growing up were like videos that I set up on a tripod and I'd go by and I'd do a trick and then I'd stop the tape and I'd go to the next place and I'd do another trick. And it was like, it just kept, that was what my quality of video was. And then for my friends, they had such higher quality. Like their, all their videos were so much better because I was filming them as opposed to like being in front of it. And it was like that with skateboarding for a long time in uh, junior high, I guess, for the most part. And then when I got in through high school, I started getting more involved in doing like more creative stuff. And it was my, it was specifically my, my teacher in, um, in high school, um, Shelly Ellis. Shout out Shelly Ellis. Yeah, Shelly. <laughs> she, uh, she was the, uh, the first person to say, hey, you got something here. You got something here and you're in a weird small town. Um, you know, there's a lot of people from my hometown that I still keep in touch with now that, you know, they will agree with me that there was nothing for the creative industry. There was nothing for film. There was nothing for photography. There was nothing for graphic design. There was nothing for that. It was just, you're either a fisherman, a farmer, or a hockey player. 
and that's it. Like really, or you just work at your parents' business and you take it over and you're successful. Like you do well, relatively speaking for the neighborhood, for the environment that you're in. But like, if you're like into the arts at all and you're from this basically a farming town, you're not going to get very far unless you leave. And so all throughout high school, I was pushing boundaries. You know, I got, I mean, this is a thing I bring up all the time. Like, so I had a, I had a class in high school. It was a PEI history class. We had a whole semester of just PEI history. And you'd be surprised that you can fill a curriculum with just a history of Prince Edward Island. Is that what your cat sounds like? Oh, yeah. He's not happy we're in That's here. That's unreal. Those of you who can't see us, obviously, it's not a visual podcast, but um, we're recording this in my my makeshift studio, which I guess is my bedroom, um, and I've locked out my cat, not because David is allergic, but because he uh, whines like that. So I just if, hope I just hope you can hear it. I'll talk over <laughs> it, but like if you could hear that, that was, that was amazing. It, you can hear it down the hall. Uh, I have incredible. a friend who lives, uh, Sean lives down the hall. That's incredible. And uh, you can hear him. Like If I stop there for a minute, he hears me, he can smell me, and he he starts whining. Anyways, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure it's right? absolutely <laughs> intolerable for you, but like I love it. Oh, it doesn't bother me at anyway. All. So PI history class, I get an assignment to make a presentation about something related to PI history. It, sure. I, I I think it was more specific, but I thought of it as very generic. And yeah. I we were given the option to do a um, an oral presentation, a written essay. Or a visual presentation. No one did a visual presentation. Okay. That wasn't a thing that people thought was worth doing. Um, nor would would it be entertaining for anybody to watch it. But I was like, fuck yeah, I'm going to do that. So I did this presentation about World War II seen through my grandparents' eyes. My grandmother lived on PEI. My grandfather was in World War Was He was, he was in the war. Sure. He, he yeah. was there. But my grandmother lived here. And it was like this sort of situation. And I, I do say this, um, this wasn't my like real grandmother. Uh, it was my grandfather's second wife. Sure. Um, but nonetheless, I got two perspectives on it. It was very cool. And I, I, I didn't film them because they, they weren't comfortable in front of camera. And frankly, nobody on PEI is comfortable in front of a camera because it wasn't a thing then. Sure. Um, so I just recorded audio, uh, much the same as you and I. And I just, I well, actually, I did set up a camera and that's how I recorded the audio. But I just took their photos and I, I scanned them and um, like had them in like huge resolution, like ridiculously large. And I did this like dialogue with them and I put subtitles up painstakingly because it wasn't easy back then. Sure. And... I, I cut together this like thing with like music. I think it was like Death Cab for for Cutie. That was like the the soundtrack in oh, the background. Geez. Just like stu- it was really sweet. It was like about 15, 20 minutes long. And uh, I just told their story and I showed photos, old photos from the war, from their perspective. And I just did this like epic presentation. I got a hundred and ten percent on that on that presentation. Hundred and ten percent. It was marked ten. It was it was marked out of ten, and yeah. I got an eleven. That's where that's why everyone else is like, oh, I didn't, I didn't know you could, I didn't know you, you, can you, you could do that. Yeah, but like she thought it was like unfair to give other people in the class like high marks on something when somebody went and did something like that. Sure. Something that to me is so meaningful for my entire life, and also was like on point with like the actual topic of discussion and shit. I did like a. A superb job. Even today, I would I, I watched that video and I'm so happy by my like what I did in grade eleven. Like you it was can, amazing. You can burn that shit. Yeah, it sounds like. and 
then I digress completely because um, I was given like special privileges in high school. So one of the things that I was given was the ability, like I had this um, made up course called independent graphics. I think there was a few other students in it. And this independent graphics course was a course that you made up your own assignments to. Amazing. And you make your own assignments, you submit them at the beginning of the year, and then your teacher grades you on those assignments and how well you did on your own assignments. And I had two semesters, so a whole half year of independent. It was like two hours a day to do whatever the fuck I wanted. And it was amazing. And you know what I did? I did this like commercial. It wasn't a commercial. It started as a commercial, but it ended up being a feature-length zombie movie. Called... Wait, it ended, up, it ended up being a feature-length zombie movie? Yeah. All right, all right. It, at first, it was an assignment of like... You're like, I'm going to make, make a trailer. Make a 30-second commercial to yeah. something. And I'm like, can I make a, something bigger? And I ended up coming up with this feature-length zombie movie. And I like casted a bunch of my friends and I got like the entire school involved and they let us shoot after after school for like an hour and a half with the whole school to our like disposal and we were shooting up and down the hallways we tore up classrooms we had and it was like gory it was like inappropriately <laughs> messy like I, I made a fake torso with like a dropout floor and had somebody lay through the hole in the floor with the fake torso on top and had like zombies rip apart Jeez, this thing we filled it awesome. with like actual raw meat and shit like you that you need to post all this by the way just for I, the record I'm super embarrassed by the result because the editing is atrocious. Cause like you, it's a feature. It's like, well, it's not feature length, I guess it's only, it's like an hour long and that's still, still a long And you're what? 17 at this time? Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's a crazy. long time. I also look like a piece of shit in it. And whatever, you're like a fucking Spielberg movie at this point. No, like, dude, but you don't understand. Like when you do something like that in a small town prior to there being like easy methods of shooting like iPhones sure. and like all the stuff that we do today, um, it was difficult to make a movie back then and we did it and we did it like with ease and it was fun. And I put like whatever music I wanted cause there was no royalty free bullshit. Yeah, there's no there's nobody chirp, like, chirping at you for like yeah. using their song without their permission. Like I just used whatever songs I was into, which was all death metal and like <laughs> <laughs> perfect for a zombie. Yeah, 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 exactly. And it was just such a mess and it was awesome. And it came together and it had credits and bloopers and everything it was amazing. And again, like, I got six out of five for it. So 125% for that shit. Man, you're on a serious honor roll there. But it just gave me this, like, ability to, like, be free in high school. And, like, man, was that ever inspirational for me. Because, like, yeah, I had math and chemistry and science and English and PEI history. You know, like, shit like that. Were you self-motivated in that stuff, too? That's when it all really kicked in and said, you know what, I'm really good at this stuff. And I got to pursue this. And my, my graphics teacher who put me through this independent course said, like, you have something here. And it gave me this, like, ability to say, you know what? It's not so important to be excellent at math and excellent at chemistry and excellent at science and English and all these other courses that, like, you go through in high school. We were a consolidated school. We had, like, a lot of other things like robotics and, like, woods and metals and stuff like that. But, like, and I had interest in that stuff. Because it's all tradesmen that come out of that town. Like, right. it's people that can work with their hands. But I think this was an industry for me where I could work with my hands. The so same when, sort of deal. So you get on a plane and you fly to Toronto. Yeah. And you sink what? Like, all of your money into a steady cam rig? Well, like, I... Sorry. So I took I took a year off after I graduated high school to work. And I saved up uh, 10, 10 grand. Which I thought, at the time, was, like, the most money I've ever seen. Sure. And then I moved to Toronto and that 10 grand went away in three months. 
Oh, I have no doubt. With rent and like you know tuition and books, Absolutely. books, hard drives. If you had to buy a hard drive in two thousand seven, um, as part of your like all your school projects have to go on this thing. I bought this like lacy um, hard drive, this like single spindle drive. And it was 320 gigabytes and it cost 480 bucks. <laughs> and oh, man, and I'm thinking about it now. I'm like, that was the biggest hard drive I could buy. Sure. Yeah. That was time. probably like you had to go to a specialty shop of some sort. No, it was like, in the school shop. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Well, that's they, a specialty they, they shop. They knew. Some, yeah, so. yeah. They knew that we, you know, kids were going to like lock in on that. That probably right? took you, what, like six hours year. to download something. No, I, I'm saying it took the whole year to fill that thing oh, up. Fair. Now I can fill it up in 30 minutes. Like, yeah. it's, it's nuts. Like, but relatively speaking, that was part of my like that was like buying a book like buying a, a whole and i bought like he bought books in film school it's like as part of your curriculum and it was total bullshit i still have some of them i think like what the fuck are you gonna do with it like I'm pretty sure i still have like i a, don't have anybody i've never met anybody in the film industry that said oh do you have that that book by walter merch that has like yeah you know and it's like no, I don't like. Let me go back and check that. Let, yeah. me, let me see what happened in uh, Citizen Kane for this. Anyway, film school was um, instrumental, um, however unnecessary. It, it it you probably you've probably met a few people that have gone through film school. I went. I was there. I I, I see. I went to. I did production. Okay. Um, I did production at York because I was like I was the same as you to some degree, and but it was I mean obviously ten years earlier. Was it a full? I did well. I did two years and then two years of screenwriting because when yeah. I went to York, so I went to York um, mainly because like my dad passed when I was eighteen, mm. um, literally like mid. Uh, university application and so I was going to apply to Ryerson and York the Ryerson application I think came during like it may have come like the week after he died and I remember looking at it and I remember putting it down and I remember not thinking about it again for like three months well past the deadline so I applied to York I knew I'd get in and uh, they let in I think they let in like 100 people something like that and we went to this uh, orientation they're like Second year is going to be less. Third year is going to be less. Fourth year is going to be, you know, much smaller. Every year people leave. If you want to be here, you'll still be here. Because I remember I put my hand up and I asked. And I was like, I don't want to start this if you're telling me, like, I'm just going to get, like, you know, uh, whatever. Like, shut out at the end of it. So they were like, it's all grades. Grades are the most important thing. I was like, okay, cool. I can do grades, whatever. First year goes by. Oh, God, it was the worst. Um, second year goes by. I remember I made some stuff. They were, it was okay. Like, I was getting the I was getting the hang of it to some degree, um, trying to figure out what I wanted to do and that sort of thing. And then I didn't get back in a uh, third year. They, they were like, you can do film theory or film uh, or screenwriting. And I went, all right, cool. I, I mean, I'm not happy about that, but, like, sure. Um, and I went to the head of the program just to be like, hey, you said this was all grades. And, like, my buddy definitely has, le- like, lower grades than me. Like, not to rat someone out or anything. Just, like, this is what you told me and this is what I did and, like, you know, and the guy was like, yeah, um, too bad. And it was just, I didn't make friends with the right profs right. and stuff, which I mean, whatever, all that being put aside, uh, my biggest gripe with York was that when I went into screenwriting, which turned out to be, I think to some degree, the right thing, um, my, <laughs> they had two programs in third year and both of those classes were on the same day at the exact same time, a long and a short screenwriting class. And I was like, I'm a fucking major. Yeah. Like, how am I supposed to... Anyways, what I always tell people, anybody that tells me they're going to film school, I would say probably the trade schools are a little bit different, but, like, anybody that tells me they're going to film school, I say absolutely don't. The yeah. worst thing you can do to get into film, from my perspective, is to... Lock yourself out for four years? Not even that. It's you're going... You're doing this program where you're beholden to... For the 
the most part, teachers who aren't, they may be working, but they're not like a high level of filmmaker no. because they wouldn't be teaching. Not to be a dick about it, but like they I, probably yeah. wouldn't. Do I, you know what I, I mean? agree to some degree. I, I'm I'm very close friends with my, my editing teacher from film school. Sure. But he would also agree with me that like you go to you go to film schools to teach when you don't have any other option. Yep. And this is what you have to do because it's it's appealing to have a regular sure. um like static schedule, right? Um, and you get to meet so many people. So for somebody who's trying to get into, trying to either get into the industry or get out of it, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. You're in a position to meet the future of filmmakers in sure. a lot of ways. Now, that being said, there's a lot of there's a lot of film schools out there that are known to produce big time filmmakers. Sure. I don't think every single university and college out there should have an offer a film program because I think it's a waste of time. I think it's a waste of time to offer something that's so technical, a four year program because takes sort of takes computer science and IT in general. Take that for example into the college and and, and university sort of uh, environment. You can't base so film specifically. You can't base film production from a technical aspect into a into a uh, curriculum that lasts four years because by the end of the program everything you learned in the beginning from a technical standpoint is moot I now composition all of that like the actual f- filmmaking sort of thing yes we're just talking about tools yeah that's fair but what my friend who was in film school a couple of years before me, Learned in film school was all about film, yeah, actual film. Same with me. Actual about like learning about loading mags in a tent blind. Loading mags, like oh, terrified. Me. And that is a skill that you learned in film school that you don't need to know now. No, you do all. not need to know. And they spent hours testing physical tests where you're being like you have you have a mediator or whatever the fuck they're called where they're watching you as you work yeah, yeah, yeah. just um, to make sure you know what you're doing yeah and and you you get tested on this shit physically i did well it's like but fucking it's photography now it's it, the same thing exactly the same thing you learn all these skills and it's like they're totally useless now yeah. not that it's not it's not useful to know those things but like you're really not going to come into an industry where uh, like today anyway getting to getting to know these things it's a very niche market now and if you if you're if you're going to school for that you're not going to, nobody's going to like ask, do you know how to change a 35 mil mag in a tent? Like, yeah. no. Like, Can you lift heavy things and be there on time? You know? Exactly. So what's important is knowing the, the rules of composition, knowing how to tell a story, knowing how to like edit and like shoot to edit and like yeah. those sorts of like skills that come along with filmmaking. But like they spent so much time and, and my schooling was like really fast. It was like 15 month program. Yeah. They spent I'm like a lot of the time talking about film and I was like, I was blown away by that because we were right in the transition of like, like going from film to digital and like red cam, like just came out with a, the red one. And that, that's like what set the stage for the future of, of digital cinema. 
Well, I think what I think what's interesting about uh, about that about that specific what you just said was the editing to filming to edit and the you know composition and all that sort of stuff like which is which is just stuff that you're you're gonna learn doing like yeah I it's funny because like I always think about I, I always think about that stuff because I, I you know eventually would like to make my own things it's always been the dream and whatnot and I and I've always believed that like that's the one area that I need that I need the that you need experience for is yeah. the filming to edit like I always we've done some shorts like work-based stuff where where i've gotten to watch you film things a little bit and then look at the final uh product i have another buddy of mine who um who dan uses a bunch to uh to shoot things and i've you know sort of done really small parts and a couple little videos that he's done and it's the same thing where i watch you guys shoot and what i see from like a you know from in front of the camera or the side of the camera, so to speak. Um, and then you're like, Oh, how the fuck did this become that? Because there's that, the shooting to edit is so important. Yep. You know what I mean? And uh, and that's why I'm saying like when I, I had a, it was a five term year, a year and a half, a year and a bit. And each sort of term, each semester that we went through, it was different, like sort of progression, that sort of thing. But like, film school as a whole was is like a uh, it's way too broad especially when you're going into it wanting to do something specific you want to direct you want to be a dop you want to be an editor you want to be an actor that's great but if you go to film school they're going to teach you everything and yeah. like not enough of everything to be good at that one thing there was a lab where everybody does whatever there was a writing class and you write and it's like I had no interest in writing I had some ideas I was really proud of those ideas but like I had no interest in being a writer I had no interest in direct and directing or acting I and I had to do all of that and eventually I realized that all those people that realize I'm not going to do these things left school in their third term and the reason they left in their third term was because the fourth term was all about building a big project to pitch for your fifth term project Okay. And then in the fifth term, you spent all your time, with the exception of, you know, writing classes and editing and little, like, advanced techniques in such and such. Um, but the majority of the time was spent building your project. And if you pitched a project in the fourth term that was good enough, they'd pay for the film for you to shoot on 35 in your oh, fifth cool. project, which is really cool, right? Sure. But is it worth $10,000? No, because you're a student and you don't know much. And you're probably pretty good, but all these people that I, I'm like I'm still in touch with now left after the third term because they felt like the education part of film school was over, and now it's just like a big lab, and sure. now you're just paying like three hundred dollars an hour for a class that you can't afford because you're an like unemployed film student. Yeah, you're paying three hundred dollars a class, which is three hundred dollars an hour for for class. So if you're in a five hour lab, that's fucked. So, um, yeah. And you're doing that every week, sometimes twice a week. And probably worse now. Yeah, and it's way worse now. And it's like you're doing this thing where it's like you could be out there working as either an intern, as either a like, um, you know, in if you're on a union, you can come on as like a, like a contractor, like a temporary person um, just to like be on set and you could like actually make money, not much minimum wage sometimes at, 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 at like when you're just starting off. But everybody that left in their third term 
went off to do those things. And you know what they're doing now? Shoveling money. Shoveling money. <laughs> and they're and I'm like super jealous, but like also really proud of them because they made the right decision at the right time. Sure. Like I wasted a lot of time after film school just trying to like make up for the like tuition that I owed. And the, and the student loans and all this shit. I wasted so much time working at a job that was not my path in life. Uh, yeah, welcome to the... <laughs> that one I can relate to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but that's the thing. is It's so funny that you see that because that's I looked at all... you as this like young kid and I thought, wow, this guy, like he came out here, he you know he put his money in the right place. Because I saw it as you bought a Steadicam rig, yeah. right? And then you were the guy so, with the Steadicam, right? For, so on that topic, so, so for people that don't know what a Steadicam is, a Steadicam is a, is a rig that stabilizes your camera. It's, it's just a... Uh, like a post with a monitor on it and a camera at the top and it's on this arm that's got two spring two sets of springs on it and it basically just stabilizes the walk in your in your moves and that sort of thing so uh, basically it was invented in the 70s but but the thing of it is is that it allows you to have like a stable it, it allows you to have a stable shot so you can walk and all that stuff and it doesn't bounce there's no electronics in it there's nothing technical about it it's literally just like a like a a feat of engineering that was invented in the 70s and that that rig is used all the time in the industry but it's really hard to find somebody that knows how to operate it because it requires a specific balance it's a dance you have to get used to the rig and the rig gets used to you and you you got to you got to move with your hips and you got to like really pinpoint every single little twitch and move in your walk it's not going to take everything out of your step today they make gear rigging that like takes literally everything out of the amateur filmmakers movements um but the steadicam is still an art and i really appreciate that and i just got obsessed with it in film school and i i was like i'm gonna buy a steadicam rig if it's the if it's the last thing i do and i'm and i'm not making money i'm, I'm working sure. part-time at a job I'm not making a ton of money. I'm pay- I'm just like making rent essentially and paying for like lunch every day at film school and like eating eggs and Mr. Noodles every day. And I was like, I, I, I got to get a steady cam rig. And I went to this rental house for my fourth term project. So maybe it was good that I stuck around. <laughs> I went to my fourth term project and we were like going to rent some gear. I went to this rental house and uh, there was this steady cam rig and it was the perfect one. And you know, people aren't going to know how much these things cost, but a, a regular Steadicam rig, Steadicam is a brand, um, Steadicam with an I, um, a, a regular standard Steadicam rig is probably in the range of 10, 10 grand. Um, but they go up to like 200 grand because they have all sorts of things, bells and whistles on it. Gyros. Sure. And, and then some, <laughs> um, but the, uh, so 10 grand's a lot, especially for a student. Um, but I saw this rig, and it wasn't a Steadicam brand Steadicam. Um, it was something else. And I saw it. It was hung up in this rental house. I'm like, what are you doing with that? Are you guys renting that out? And they're like, we can't rent it out because it, nobody knows how to use it. We rent it out, and they come back, and they're like, it's too complicated. So they're like, we're just going to try to sell it. I'm like, how much is selling it for? I said, we're going to rent it. We're going to sell it for seven, seven grand. I'm like, okay, that's a lot. I, I can come up with $3,000. <laughs> I will give it to you now to put it on hold. And I was like desperate. I've never been that desperate before in my life. It was like I would rather like be homeless. Sure. With a steady cam. With a steady cam than not have anything at all. It's just something. It drove me to buying that thing. 
So they're like, okay. So I went to the bank. Well, I didn't go to the bank. I just went online, the online bank, the internet <laughs> bank, and I scraped every single penny and dime off of um, my credit cards. So I didn't have $3,000, but I had $3,000 in credit. All right. So I maxed out my credit cards. Maxed You Kevin, Kevin Smith, the steady cam. I did, and I didn't, you know, for those of you that, all of you know, the when you take money off your credit card, you get dinged for that. Wait, 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 you have to pay that back? No, I mean, you get, you get, there's a fee to take money off most student credit cards. Oh, wait, so you're, oh. I'm taking cash off oh, of my okay. credit card. You, oh, right, okay, I thought you meant you were, I like, didn't buying. Pay. I okay. didn't pay with my I credit card. I didn't catch that right away. I took cash off my credit card. Oh, man. I maxed out my credit cards in cash. Paid him $3,000 in cash because this was a cash deal. This guy was not looking to put something official through the business. Gave him $3,000 in cash. Like totally like financially regretted it. But oh my God, did I walk home with that, with all the rigging and the boxes and the cases and the backpack and all this stuff that I had on. I walked like six blocks with this shit on my back and my like carrying. I was dead. And I got to my little basement apartment with my girlfriend and I just unloaded this thing. And I was the happiest fucking broke dude in my life. And that moment, everything changed for me. Everything in my life changed. I was the steady cam guy. I was the steady cam guy in film school and there on out. I was the guy with the steady cam rig and damn did I get good at it. At first I was bad and the first videos I have a, I have a link to like the first video I ever shot on my and it's not good. Um but everything from there on out it just became everything that I did. I did I got as good as I could with that thing. I would shoot even if even if it was like a what would call for a tripod, like a standstill shot. I rigged this thing up and stood still for hours. I did. I worked for Humber College and did a, like a, a reality TV show with them. And I worked ten to twelve hour days wearing the Steadicam rig. And you know, like the main reason why this is a big deal is because if you're a professional Steadicam operator, you're on a on union. You're represented by a union, which protects you, your health, your knees, your back, everything. You get specific breaks. You get specific lunches. You can only work a certain amount of time. You get a certain pay. And I was like, 300 bucks flat per day, (laughs) whatever the hell you want. I'll wear this thing all day. And I did. And I did for like 12 hours a day. And I was making bank as far as I was concerned. 300 bucks a day sounds really damn good. I was making more money than I've ever made in my life. And I just like was so pumped. I paid this rig off. I had to take loans off of friends and stuff like that just to like get the rest of the rig paid off up front. But, you know, I was making money off this thing. This thing paid for itself in a year. It was such a good investment. And I held this Steadicam rig as like the biggest tool on my tool belt. I became the Steadicam Steadicam guy in, in school and everybody hired me to do their student films. And then after film school, I was working on music videos. It got me into the industry. It got me to know DOPs. It got me to know directors. It got me to know everybody. Just having just having possession of this thing. They didn't even care that I knew how to use it. It was just, oh my God, there's a Steadicam guy that owns his own gear that and 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 he's not on a union. Yeah, I don't have to pay him. I don't have to pay him union fees. I, I don't have to rent the Steadicam. And, and he doesn't do cost fifteen hundred dollars a day. Yeah, no wonder you were working all the time. You know, it, it was almost like I was selling myself way short. Yeah, I probably could have, um, like, gone on to, like, IATSE and, and, and 
properly went up the the ladder of being a camera operator but that takes years like it, it takes a year you have to log a certain amount of hours as a camera assistant as you know like doing and camera trainee and then a camera assistant and like most people that are camera assistants like never move on from camera assistant because they like where they're at and like they're good at it and it becomes a specific field to be in and you're respected and you're paid well and there's absolutely no reason to move on to it but if you want to become a steady camera operator you got to go through the whole ranks all the tests you got to get certified you got to go through all these courses and, and they only do them in la and new york and it's cost tons of money and at the end of the day it's like i had this rig nobody cared how i used it even though like i did know how to use it yeah but i just loved it and i started doing so much cool shit with it i just it was like me dancing with someone else just like i just felt this rhythm with this rig and it just became part of me and i, I did it for for basically the better part of 10 years i'll say you were doing it for a long time well i'll tell you what we're gonna take a quick break to listen to my uh one sponsor that i have um you're gonna find out who it is um and we're gonna be right back with the steadicam guy dave dumbbell and we're gonna talk about a bunch of the things that he did with that steadicam um after that and uh we'll be right back hey guys you're listening to running up the downstairs podcast diving into the creative process and what fuels artists to create this podcast is brought to you by Josh Finkelman's Instagram and Twitter accounts at KJoshRadio. This is Alberto Josue from Arcane Circle Records, sending you all the love from Toronto, and don't forget to support your local artists. All right, and we're back. Um, so, Dave, we were talking about the Steadicam use before and where that got you in terms of uh, what that allowed you to, to do and all that sort of stuff. Um, and that was sort of, I think, like around where we first met ar- around that time. And then one of my favorite things about that period was that you then started doing a lot of like YouTube stuff with a friend of ours, um, Skunder, who uh, one of the best things or one of my favorite things of that era was the horse bliss. So um, <laughs> just for anyone who doesn't know, if you have a chance, Google horse bliss. Oh. It's, oh my god it's fantastic it was yeah. uh dave and variety and a variety of other people wearing uh horse masks which you probably have seen on the internet doing just a bunch of things and then dave edited edited it all together um and they're phenomenal like they're just kind of silly stupid things that are just incredibly entertaining so um let's talk about that period time period like what sure. got you in all that yeah stuff? yeah so um i moved in with my buddy uh scunder benamore he was uh one of my friends from uh, from my work that I uh, I think we him and I jived both on like a intellectual level and like a creative level. We we were both not really quite sure what we wanted to do. Um, I was shooting um, a lot of corporatey stuff, and a lot of it was kind of boring. And every time I got a chance to shoot like a music video or something relatively creative, I just had all this like creative juice flowing through me and I just was really, really ready to, uh, to shoot some like wicked stuff, but I never had anybody to do it with. And part of having this, like, um, all this gear, I had all this camera gear and the steady cam and all this stuff. I was like, I had all this stuff just sitting in, for lack of a better word, rotting in my closet and not being utilized to its full potential. I was using it as a tool when it was necessary for a lot of the videos I was shooting, but like I would pull this Steadicam out on the most boring shoots, not because they wanted it, but because I was just bored with shooting on a tripod or like handheld video. Like I do this like sort of Rick Mercer, uh, Steadicam walk and stuff. It's like we do these interviews and shit, but like we'd like walk and shoot as we do it. 
and it always was better. But I'd have all this like creative stuff in my brain, like stuff I'd love to shoot, but like never had somebody to like really do it with. And I had moved in, um, my friend Skunder and, um, we had this like bitching place, just this like penthouse. That apartment was great. On the, on late, on the lake, like 32nd floor. I have no idea how we found this. It was just like through Kijiji, through some weird, uh, weird guy that we just thought it was fake. It was one of those like Kijiji ads that you just think like, this can't be real. The photos can't be real. The price can't be real. And the best part about it was like, he gave it to us for like 1900 a month. And which is sounds steep, but at the time, um, it sounds super cheap. It sounds super cheap. Yeah, we were... Not knowing Toronto <laughs> now, but like 1900 at the time was a lot more than we could afford, but we, we were like, this should be worth it. Two bedroom, 32nd floor, upper penthouse. And we bought into it and we're like, it comes with parking. Can we, uh, can we rent the parking out? And he's like, I'll just take 200 off the rent. So, <laughs> so it was $1,700 a month. Between him and I, with like two bedroom, two bathroom, it was amazing. Anyway, it was a, it was, so that was a great apartment and a nauseating balcony. Yeah, that so two two dudes terrifying. on top of the world, literally, and all this like creative power and freedom to like shoot whatever we wanted. We both worked at the same place, and we'd come home at the same time because we worked the same job. Like we were literally doing <laughs> the same thing together every day. We come home and it's like, let's shoot some shit. Like, what are we gonna do? And one night we just got real drunk playing video games and I bought these horse masks off the internet. Just off Amazon. And I bought like, I think I bought like three or four of them or something. Like I did something stupid. It was just a drunk online purchase. <laughs> and I forgot about it to be honest. And like, you know, before Amazon Prime was a thing, these things arrived uh, like a week or so later. And I was like, holy shit, I bought these masks. What are we going to do with them? My cousin was in town and, and uh, you know, him and I are a bit of, you know, we're kind of hooligans when we're together. And we put these masks on and we just fucking like shot this like dumb video of us dancing. We posted it on YouTube. And uh, it was, it got, it got really popular really quickly. Um, just like, you know, a few thousand views overnight, which was like, you know, unexpected. It wasn't, like, viral or anything like that, but it was well before, like, these horse masks were, like, a popular thing on the internet. And if you don't know anything about these horse masks, you'll see it. They're they're everywhere, and it's, you know, it just became this, like, popular thing. So we made these videos. People wanted more. And we're like, Skunder and I were thinking, let's do, like, let's do this properly. Like, we're, we're in the age of, like, Instagram and Facebook and Vine, and there's, like, this, like, huge online platform of, like a bunch of nobodies that can get together and do something really cool without having to have funding, without having to have anything, any talent or anything. You just post shit, and if people like it, it becomes popular naturally. So we're like, okay, let's do this as one one giant social media experiment. Let's put these horse masks on and, and do these videos every week at the same time. Let's brand it. Let's make a website. Let's have some, like, merchandise and shit a logo, we'll properly do it, you know, like, do, like, a really high-quality thing, we've got high-quality gear, high-quality talent, let's put it together, we've got everything we need, so we would brainstorm a few ideas to make these, like, one-minute, two-minute videos, and for music, we just looked up people that didn't have music videos for their songs, popular music that's being, like, talked about now, and at the time before, like, YouTube and Instagram flags everything under the yeah, sun. Before the algorithms were unleashed. Sure. Um, before Shazam was a thing, we, um, you know, we would put these wicked songs over top of our videos. There'd be no dialogue. There'd be no sound, really. It would just be, like, these guys doing 
bullshit stuff wearing these horse masks, and it would be like good. You did one of the X, I think. The <laughs> yeah. one of the X was this. That's ins- still online. Is it still online? Yeah. It was insane because I remember that you guys were you had some crazy camera too. It wasn't just like a steady cam. Like you had a, I mean maybe it wasn't like a red camera. Like wasn't it a was it a Black Magic cam at the time? Yeah, at the time it was. Yeah. And so you, everything. Think, actually, you know what? I think all this. I think all of this like horse bliss stuff was like done on just like a DSLR. It wasn't anything like fantastic. It was just like I anytime I was shooting, I would use the steady cam. I'd do slow motion stuff. I'd really like oh, put so a lot of was, effort into it. it but like great. every time I, for the actual majority of the videos, I was the guy wearing the mask and my friend Scunder was shooting and he'd do a wicked job. Like he, he was just really good at just keeping things sharp, keeping things framed properly, and he'd just shoot some quality stuff with a DSLR and we would bring it back home. We'd shoot a couple of these little mini sods or whatever, like and webisodes. I webisodes, think they call them now. yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, we'd shoot these things, and we just come, we'd come out of it with like three videos. So we're like, instead of blasting out three videos, let's just do it every week. Every Thursday at noon, we'll launch a video, and we'll hype people up for it. We'll make a website. We'll do all this stuff. We'll build, like, we'll do it all properly. And you know what? We got a following. And we started. We did it. We decided to do it on Vimeo instead of YouTube. Because Vimeo at the time um, was just kind of letting whatever um, be uploaded and there was nothing being flagged or anything for like copyright music. We're not trying to make money off of anything. Like we, they offered a tip jar thing on Vimeo, but like it was like totally optional. There was no advertisements. There was nothing. We're not looking for money here. We're just trying to get a following just for fun. If you get a chance, Google Horse Bliss. They really are like I know we're talking about it. You're, you're listening to this podcast. You're here for a reason, but Google it. It's it. They're worth watching. They they're they're very good. Yeah. I'm not just biased on this. So, we made a video every week. Even if we didn't shoot every week, we made we shot enough to provide a video every week, about a minute, two minutes in length, um, and we did it for forty two weeks. We had forty two episodes. Get the fuck out of here. You guys yeah. did 42 episodes? Yeah. Man, I was a big fan. I, did, I, did I see even... Dude, fuck. That sounds like a, yeah. that sounds like a ridiculously and large amount of it things. Was, it was crazy. I mean, like, not every week was it, like, stellar. Sometimes it would just be, like, this really dumb, like, single shot thing. But it would be random. It'd be beautiful. Great music. And it'd be uploaded. It'd be fantastic. And, like, then sometimes, like, our friends would want to get involved. And we would collaborate and do a video together. And, like, get everybody... Like, we had, like two dozen masks so we could get like so many people involved in it we did stuff all over the place we brought masks to like ottawa and did stuff on like parliament hill and like by the way don't wear a mask on parliament hill they do not like it but we did and it was funny and we did we just did so much shit together and it was really fun um but there was some side effects of this so yes scunner and i got together and we did these videos but it was pretty much all we ever did Besides the stuff that I was doing freelance, him and I were working on these videos on the side, and it was all we really produced. And yeah, they were good, and they became pretty popular. Like they they gained like I think like hundred thousand views or whatever in the oh, in a short bad. period of time, in total. And it was like you know that's not viral territory, but it's definitely like recognized. And it's there's no dialogue in it, so it was like we would follow the analytics of it. It was like Germany and like. Like, surprising amount of, like, European countries really enjoyed these videos. I don't know why, but, like, besides the point, this is all I was producing. And it was coming out of my personal Vimeo account. So, what happened after that was Gunnar and I, um, from a living standpoint, went our separate ways. And we didn't produce so many videos. 
And we thought about it and we're like, eh, let's just kind of retire it. We're, we're off doing our own things. I was pretty much full-time freelance. I was busy. I was doing as much work as I could pull in. But I was trying to build a brand online. And my brand was surrounded by my name. My business was my name. I didn't have a production company. I didn't have anything like that. My name was my brand. Problem with that, and the problem with the internet, and my problem with that one 60-year-old guy, <laughs> David Dunville, living down in the States. See, we brought it all back around. If you Google my name, the first thing that would show up is a bunch of these wacky videos of dudes wearing horse masks. And it was like, none of it was me. Like, it was all me wearing the masks, but you couldn't tell it was me. Like, I have tattoos now, and like, this was prior to me getting tattoos. So you really couldn't tell it was me, thankfully. But that said, when you Google my name, why do these things show up? I wasn't so concerned about getting work or like getting interviewed and then like looking me up and finding these things. But from the perspective of, of a freelancer whose job is to like, so like be on social media and be as available and like critical and, and that sort of thing as possible. If you Googled me, all that would show up are these horseless things. So I had to retire the brand. Not that I really cared too much about it. It could have been something big, but my biggest mistake was instead of making it like Horse Bliss. Right, like its own Vimeo account. It was like my personal Vimeo account. So I had to make all the videos private, with the exception of like the trailer, which was like a super cut of everything, and then like a couple of the episodes. I privatized everything else. And I uh, actually, it it benefited me in in a little bit of a way because my account showed like it had a ton of views and I had a ton of videos and I had already had all this like sort of algorithm thing working in my favor so I had like I then started like pumping out videos of my own personal shit putting my reel up there putting out any of my like little custom stuff that I did and my creative stuff that I did out in the field just like stuff that was fun that I could get away with putting on on Vimeo and it would get a lot of traction just simply because my channel already got it you're already in the, yeah. in the algorithm. So it's funny, and, and like Skunder will agree with me that like the Horseplus brand, although abrasive to our personal um, online persona, uh, actually got us both jobs, like in the sense that like oh, yeah, the attraction to our channel, the attraction to the videos, um, he would pitch it. He's like, I made these videos and you know, he, yeah, he got jobs based around it. He's ridden the horse for a while. He's ridden the yeah. horse. And like, likewise, I've ridden the fact that like my reel got viewed thousands and thousands and thousands of times by many strangers, just simply because when you Googled my name, I was like number one, no matter what I was up there. And if you Googled the best part about it is I got this big job as a DOP on a feature film. And that was like not a steady cam operator. But as a like DOP specifically, and I asked the director, how did you find me? Because I didn't know him. How did you find me? He just like wanted to chat with me. And he's like, I just looked up DOPs in Toronto. And my name came up first. That's wild. And it was all because this horseless fucking brand, this dumb bullshit thing I did with my roommate years ago. And it looked good. It looked good, but yeah. like it wasn't because of the videos showing up when you Googled my name. It was because my Vimeo channel showed up with my reel uh, and my contact information on it. So I rode this weird social media experiment online and then decided to privatize it all and just use that channel for my own shit. And somehow Google like oh, algorithms allowed somebody to Google like cinematographers in Toronto and 
I was one of the top ones and he just randomly contacted me and I got this gig as like a DOP on a big feature film. It was oh, amazing. that's crazy. What yeah. movie? What was the movie? Uh, it was called The Death and Life of Nar- of Carl Nardlinger. The Death and Life of Carl Nardlinger. Okay, I remember this. Yeah. And what, what what year was this? How long ago? Well, it was just before I got the job I'm in now, so it would have been 2015, 16? So that's like the... 2016. So how was that? So that like that's got that's got to feel like the uh, you've climbed the mountain so well, to speak. Well, so I uh, I was working uh, part time as a trainer, a computer trainer. Do I get to say where I was at, or does it? Sure, you can say where you. Well, yeah. whatever. It was a company that sells computers. All right. Well, that can be edited out. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. It's fine. Um, the, their algorithm, I don't think, is paying attention. Yeah. So <laughs> I was part time at my job, and I was full time freelance the rest of the time. And I got this gig as a as a, a DOP on a feature, and at the same time, I got a job as a DOP on a TV series for Bell, and it wasn't a big time TV series, but it was like my buddy was directing, and he got me this gig, and it was great. It was nighttime work. Um, it was like, you know, we we were shooting at uh, Snakes and Lattes, if if you know where that is. Oh wait, this was the uh, was this the Snakes and Lattes show? Yeah, all right. It was a show based you can say on the names. I think. Yeah, I don't... so it was based on Snakes and Lattes, the the cafe, but uh, it was a whole series made for that that place, fictional series made about that place, and uh, I got these two jobs at once, and I was still working part time at my job. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, for like one whole summer, I was not sleeping. I uh, I just did not sleep. I, I worked nights all night, 10 a.m. or sorry, 10 p.m. to basically 8 a.m. at this cafe doing this TV series. And then I would work at my part time job. Yeah. And then the, you know, opposite week, I'd be full time on this feature and taking time off my part time job. And then I'd sometimes go in at the end of that and, and like, I just basically worked between the two of them and said, like, Here's my availability. Yeah. And I just worked within that. And then eventually I just was, I found myself like basically giving myself three hours of sleep a night. Working on these two. Sleeps for the old. Yeah. But it made me like (laughs) dramatically sick. I was, I, I, I never been so sick in my life. I got a bee sting. I'm not allergic to bees, but I got a bee sting on my arm and it swelled up my whole arm in the middle of production on this feature. And it was that way for the rest of the production. (laughs) <laughs> and I just think, I think today that it was just because I was so goddamn stressed that it just never, my body never got used to just healing up and being okay again. Oh, wow. Anyway, I, I, uh, I, I, I digress quite a bit, but like the feature was really great. It, uh, I went to the premiere. It felt really weird to watch like all your work on a screen and then like it, it played at like the Carlton cinema and stuff like that. And like, uh, it did like a full, like sort of two week cycle thing. And it was just weird. I bought a regular ticket to see this movie with like regular people in the theater. And like, there was people there like to see my movie, you that's know, wild. really, really weird. But, um, it was really time to say goodbye to that world. Like I, I, I worked freelance for so many years and it was such a weird, I had so much debt. I was like in so much debt cause I bought so much gear and I just, I got a line of credit when I was working because, like, my credit score was pretty good and I was making a decent salary and stuff like that. And I just got this massive line of credit and I maxed it out. I thought I was going to be an editor and, like, have this home studio. And it's like, home studios cost a lot. If you think you're going to be an editor, <laughs> do not think, do not buy everything that you see on the internet because that's what I did and it fucked me because I'm not an editor. 
I fucking hate editing. And you wouldn't think that when you look at me, when you see the things that I've done, but like editing is the the stain on my life. Like That's so interesting because you are incredibly talented at it. It stems from the fact that I am not, I don't think of myself as actually a creative person. And you will completely disagree with me. I will. I, I'm doing it in my head right now. But there has never been a point in my life where I have come up with a unique original idea. Yeah, but that's, that's I, I, would, I would argue, I would push back on you, I would say that a unique original idea is just one type of creativity. Well, a lot of people would say a unique original idea is one degree away from something that has already been done. And, well, I did have a, I mean, there, there's the idea that there's only a hundred stories in the naked city or whatever, but I think like the thing that's really interesting about you and uh, that statement being sort of your mindset, at least to me is because like, I know if I were to come to you with a fully fleshed out idea, right. Or whatever it was, and I was like, Dave, let's make this, you know, short or whatever. And we did that. Yeah. You would have a million different creative ideas in terms of how to take my whatever stupid idea on paper that I had written that, you know, might be good or whatever, but is never going to be nearly as interesting as it is after you're done shooting it slash editing it slash but whatever. You know? That's what I'm trying to say is I would flourish in the idea of someone giving me a concept and I'd be like, fuck yeah, that's a good idea. I can make it better. I can do this, 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 and this. Now, later in life, I moved in with my best friend and we spent years together just kind of melding minds. And he did something completely different than me. And But he appreciated the fact that like what I was doing um, was like something he didn't fundamentally understand. And what he was doing, I didn't understand. But we learned off each other and we used to like... You know, give each other the best fucking advice because it was some from some sort of like really obscure but connected outside opinion, and you know through that we came to this like fundamental realization that I'm not a creator, and there are lots of creators out there. There are YouTube creators and influencers and all this stuff, and they create shit. They come up with amazing content. I'm not a creator. That's why I don't have, if you Google me, you're not going to find the best content you've ever seen. You're going to see good quality stuff that I've worked on, but like none of that was my idea. Like when I worked with Skunder on the horse stuff, like we came up with those ideas together. And that was the combination of two people putting their minds together and coming up with something. Sure. But from my perspective, I couldn't come up with an idea to, if, if it killed me. Like I just, I would get this massive anxiety when a client would come up to me and say, I want to shoot a commercial for my company, but I have no idea how to do it. Can you produce this thing? And you know what I would do? I'd say, hell yeah, I can produce that. But behind their back, I'd go and hire my buddy who's a guy that can like create ideas and shit like yeah. that. I'd pay him a thing and we'd come up with an idea together and like I'm like, I'm going to bring in other people to work on this thing together and that's how I would make money is I would like rely on the people that are smarter than me. Not smarter, but like they are. And I always think of them as smarter than me. But from the perspective of surround yourself with people that are better than you, in your opinion, and you will become a better person because of it. Sure. And yeah. that's what I did. That's how I made money. It's like I said yes to everything, and I found the people that I didn't know the answer to to come up with a solution for it. And between me and my roommate, 
we found out that I was not a creator, that I was an executioner. And that sounds, (laughs) (laughs) that sounds morbid, but like, it's true. Like, I don't come up with the ideas. I just execute people's ideas. And not only that, but I'll execute them better than what they even originally thought they'd be. And that's what a DOP is. A director of photography is somebody who takes a director or a writer's idea, plans it all out, storyboards it all out, and is in charge of everything that's in the frame. The lighting, the staging, the blocking, everything. And that is somebody who executes an idea, not somebody who comes up with an idea. And that's where I was so happy. And once I realized that, I said, I got to get out of this game. Interesting. I got to... I, I got out of the freelance game right then and there. I applied to a job that, well, I didn't apply. I, well, I did, actually. I got a, I was referred to a job, and I applied to it, and I got it, and it was working in post-production because I realized that, like, if somebody came to me with an idea, I'd be able to execute it. It'd be great. But I'm not someone who can come up with something on the fly, and it was... That's a great a, moment of clarity between me and, and my roommate. That's such an it's, a, it's such an interesting revelation. And I think especially <laughs> for, like, someone who, you know, came up thinking, like, this is what I was going to do. So, like, do you look at that as, like, you... So, like, okay, so, you know, you bought the steady cam. That was a moment of, okay, you did that. That was chapter that, two as far right. as I'm concerned. And then you're sitting there and you're, like, having this... To, this debate, internal debate, whatever, talking to your roommate and all that sort of stuff. But, like, where you, did you... Was it more of a, the idea of you went from being... Like, because you say freelancer, but in my head, I'm thinking, like, freelance could be anything, right? Like, freelance could be, you know, your uh, uh, advertising, whatever it happens to be, right? Um, do you, was that a moment where you kind of went from being um, this amorphous sort of Johnny on the spot to being a DOP? Like, I am a director of photography. Like, this is... I had already, I had already done all this stuff. <clears throat> At this point of clarity, I had already done the DOP role where I'd worked under a director or a writer or a writer director or something where I had taken an idea that had already been planned out and executed it to the best that I could do. Mm -hmm. And that was the result. Like I, got results from other people's ideas. Did and, you not want to do it after that? Like, because I, I know you're doing, like, we're going to talk about it in a second. I mean, I'm, a, you know, it's where we're sort of headed, but, like, did you feel like, okay, I did the DOP thing, I did that. Like, did you, did the idea of, like, creating fiction and, you know, movies and that sure. kind of thing, did something change there in that sense? Nothing changed. Nothing changed because I realized I'd been doing it all along. Mm-hmm. And everything that I've done, it's either I had inspiration from somebody else and thought that's a cool idea, I'm going to do it too, or I'm going to do it better, or I'm going to do it in my way, or whatever that might be. Or I work on the big feature, or I work on the big TV series, or I work on whatever. It's like, whatever that was that went through my mind, it was like this like really comforting feeling of saying, you know what, I'm not trying to like scratch at the you know tiny jobs that are coming in and out. And getting, I, I shouldn't get stressed about that stuff. What, what happens is somebody comes to me with an idea and I do it. And I do it well. And I do it and they're happy or I do it and I modify it slightly and they're even happier than they would have been if I did it just the way they wanted it to. And it, it's, it was a cool realization because for me, it made me comfortable to apply to a job in post-production. Mm-hmm. And, and in post-production, you don't have any say over what the content is. You're given the content. You just have to execute it. You just have to make sure that it goes well and it is 
done exactly the way the client wants it or better. That's it. And I realized that once I, once I came to that conclusion, I realized that I'm going to be working in an industry that's in te- television and film, but I'm going to be on the back end side of things. I'm going to be like the concept, the ideas, all the things that I thought I was going to do, all the things that I thought I was going to be good at. I, I'm not afraid of not doing that stuff. I'm, I, what I like doing, what I want to do is I want to make other people's ideas a, a reality because if I spent all my time trying to come up with concepts and ideas, I'd fucking be broke. I'd be broke as shit. I'd be sitting in a corner in my basement apartment alone, probably single and depressed, <laughs> and just be wondering about all the things I could have done. And for now, it's like what I do best is... I take other people's work and I finish it for them or I continue it or I, like I take the baton, you know, and I, so tell like, what does that look like a little bit in terms of, uh, you know, your, your day to day? Yeah. So I work in a post house now and that might feel like a bit of a meat grinder sort of situation, but I mean, in reality, it, it is a big machine. Post production is something that's heavily overlooked, heavily, um, underestimated and heavily under budgeted i never understood what what happened after you shoot something until i physically worked in it i was always the guy shooting stuff and i did worry about it later and i didn't care about it it's like i shot it and i just like threw it on a hard drive and just like later i'd come back to it and like edit it or whatever but like in the actual industry in the actual world everybody's worried about what you're shooting right now right now you're shooting content today. Editors want it that night. They want that content with the audio, with the color, everything that's meant for the film or the TV show. They want it today. And it's like a constant working machine. From the moment it's captured and acquired, it needs to be copied, backed up, duplicated, redundant, completely safe and then once that's done it needs to be sunk together graded color graded and then supplied to the editor so that they can work with it then the editors need to cut it all together until the shoot is done and once the shoot is done they bring it back to us with the edit and we need to raise the resolution up properly do the final coloring then we need to put all the vfx in then we need to grade the vfx then we need to put all the titles and all the other graphics and supers and everything on it then the packaging and then there's the plethora of fucking deliveries to all the networks to netflix to fucking cbc to you know apple disney all these fucking outlets that we have to deliver to in their specific really detailed requirements of how they want it to be delivered then we got to archive it it's got to be safe for 40 years on a shelf without spinning discs it's got to be perfect and like secured and archived in its pristine perfect position like i never thought i'd be good at it but in all my years of working with computers and technology working with people working with clients expectations being able to jive with changing gears and working with different different types of people in life i never thought that this exactly is where i want to be is i've got the best mix of the film and creative the sort of industry that i learned and grew up into 
And then I also have that technical side that I'm really good with computers, really good with workflow, really good with that sort of, with like dealing with clients and, mm-hmm. and the soft skills side of life and executing the idea, the concept of what the director or the writer or the initial person that created the so material. What's your, what's your like official job title? So my official job title now is supervisor of engineering operations, which is a blanket way of saying I wear a lot of hats. So do you are you like almost like a project manager where you're overseeing all these sort of disparate um, ideas like color correction, the all that of, sort of stuff? Or are you, or or are you are you actually doing those? things? I think it's just important to be in in my role an expert at at workflow, an expert at understanding how it gets from A to B to Z, you know, like just all the way through um, the entire post workflow. When you see, you know, when you watch a movie and you, you see the credits roll mm-hmm. and it's just endless names and you see eh, like just who the fuck are all these people? I might be one of those tiny people, but I understand why there's so many of those people. I understand why there's so many little cogs in the machine that when one of those cogs is pulled out, it falls apart or it doesn't work the way it should have. So it's important. It's heavily underestimated. All the money in film and television goes to production. And it's only recently where we're starting to like really recognize VFX and post in particular and the work that's done after it's shot it's only recently that we've recognized that post-production is, I wouldn't say more valuable than production, obviously, but like just as valuable as production is. But man, is it like ever frustrating sometimes to, to have to like correct people's behavior when reacting or overreacting to the way that certain things go in post-production, the expectation of like storage costs money storing, 150 terabytes of material costs money it co- and and not only does it is it just about storing it it's about being able to access it play it back in real time with the grades with the noise reduction with the multiple monitors and the output over SDI and all this shit with clients in the room and you're streaming it from Toronto to LA in real time that shit costs money sure but nobody thinks about it because it's just part of the process. So let me ask you a question. The thing that you're, you're obviously uh, very passionate, and very like you're enjoying what you're doing. That like I, I would say probably more on the the corporate side of the production than the yeah. Actual, this podcast like, has really taken a turn into the serious nitty gritty of <laughs> we're we're getting really into the the, the, uh, industry, yeah. the nuts and bolts. <laughs> but but that's the thing is and because that's what's interesting about it because you've done all of these things. So you've, yeah, you've been self motivated. You've been the person who you know has sort of uh, motivated the whole thing, and now you're working in what is I mean essentially a corporate environment, still doing all of that stuff. Yeah. But so I guess the question is, let's say five years from now, you're still happy, you're still doing the job, all that sort of stuff, but someone comes to you and says, Hey, I want you to DOP this feature film that I um, wrote and this person's going to be in and all that stuff. Would you, w- do you feel like where you're at right now, would you be tempted to say, You know what? Yeah, I'm going to take a leave of absence and do that because that's a great opportunity? Or are you now in a place where you're like, No, no, that was past. 
past Dave. That was David. I'm still Dave. <laughs> well, you know? I've I've found that it's been uh, it's nicer now that I have like a like a consistent paycheck and stuff like that. Uh, working in a hustle where you get like months of income at a time and then go months without income um, does not bode well for one's mental stability. <laughs> uh, it it's um, it's nice to pick and choose and yeah. I'm more inclined to say yes to like friends that want to do uh, something like I still own like a, a really decent camera and I have a little gimbal and like I yeah I sold the steady cam when I got rid of a lot of the gear that I once owned and that was just to like simply pay off debt and like get out of this hole that I buried myself in but like I realized that like it's not about the the physical tools and the gear and all this expensive shit it's about what you know what you can do with your hands, what you can do with your brain. And, you know, I know some really talented people that can shoot some incredible stuff with just a little fucking DV cam, you know? And yeah, like, I, I mean, I work full time. I work more than full time. I, I work like 60 hours a week and not because I, I have to, but because I want to, because I enjoy what I do. And these sort of opportunities still come up because I still like, I've got so many, my circle of my circles of friends is like vast and wide. And there's people that like, I just, I can't be, uh, I can't, I give everybody attention if I can. And I like try to like maintain as much friendships with people as I can. Um, and, uh, I still get people that like call me out and say like, Hey, can you shoot this? Can you shoot that? Like, can you do my friend's wedding? Can you do all this stuff? And yes, there will be things I say no to, like doing people's weddings. I was just going to say, that that sounds like a no to That me. was a whole <laughs> year of my life I want back. But, you know, like, I I still want to shoot stuff. I still have that creative side of things. And I, I'll still, like, you know, I'll still take gigs on the side and stuff if I can. And, like, fortunately, I work in an environment where they allow me to do that. Like, just being able to, like, take a little bit of time off or be like leave a little early to be able to make a call time somewhere i'll still do creative stuff but it isn't my focus anymore um especially if it comes to editing like it's unbelievable how much i'm turned off by editing from just simply dealing with clients just talking to somebody i know that i'm not going to want to do this project because i know that the editing side of things is going to be a nightmare because of the revisions because of the can you make me happier no, I can't because you were miserable looking the entire time I shot, you know. And that's why I got out of the wedding industry, shooting, all that stuff. Like, I just couldn't deal with editing. And I, what I ended up doing towards the end of, like, freelancing full-time was, like, dealing with, um, like, like, hiring my friends who are good at editing and like doing it and bringing on as many people as I could. And, t like, t before I got my post-production job, I exclusively relied on hiring people that were eager to shoot or sorry, eager to edit what I've shot and I would pay them and we'd make a nice little thing. And I would just, I, it would be nice for me to just shoot and like give cards to somebody and just to let them take care of it and deal with clients and deal with the revisions and all that shit that I just fucking hated. So it was, it was, it was the right time for me to move on um, from freelance because I couldn't deal with it. And I, got into a really serious relationship who's now my fiance and I'm getting married. I don't want to, Whoa, wait, no, did you, <laughs> I, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to be hustling in this like freelance world where I might make 20 grand in one month of work, 
but then go months without money. Like, I can't do that. I can't raise a family with that. I can't do any of the adulting that I want to do um, with with just, just solely freelance. So, like, right. I'm really, I found my stride. I'm in an industry which touches everything that I like, and it still gives me the creative freedom to go out and shoot my own thing and do my own stuff when I want to, when the job is worth doing or when I feel like I'm devoted to it. And uh, it's nice because I'm touch I'm touching kind of all the spots. So it's great. It's so interesting. Like I, I it's funny, I think like if uh, and I guess we'll we'll kind of bring it bring it in bring it in for a landing here. But I think it's so interesting that you because I look at you to some extent and I think, okay, when I was when I was young, like, these are the decisions I made, and this is what brought me to this place, and this is what brought me to this place, and I look at you, and I think, like, you've done, you, you've kind of had this path where you've tried all a bunch of things, and now you've found yourself in a place where you're comfortable, you're happy, you're, you're taken care of, you can adult, and all that sort yeah. of stuff, right? And I always think it's so interesting that, like, when we're kids, when we're young, we have these sort of grandiose ideas, right, where, um, you know, I want to be a director, I want to be this, I want to be that, I want to make music, I want to do whatever it is, and the reality is, is that a lot a lot of times that um, uh, sort of idea, that, that desire brings you to a place where you're supposed to be, but it's not that thing, you know? Like, not everyone can be a fucking movie star or, you know, Scorsese or whoever, um, but it's so interesting that, like, I think the most important thing that people can be, like, whenever someone tells me they want to, you know, this is what they're going into, and I always think, like, my experience is, sure, like, that can be your final goal, but, like, I remember when I was younger, people would say to me, oh, you know, do this and then figure that out later or do this and then figure it. And I was like, fuck you, I'm going into film. Yeah. I'm going to be a director. This is what's going to happen. You know what I mean? Where, um, and then you find out that like, as you go through that, I like this, I don't like that. I like this. And then you end up doing a thing that gives you all of that, uh, allows you to dip your hands and all that sort of stuff. And I think if I, if I had one, Oh, if I could go back and do something different or like, you know, people are, oh, what would you tell your 12 year old self? <laughs> you know, I always think that's the lesson that I would want to give my, my younger, the younger version of me is not that, um, you know, not don't try things or don't do this or don't do that. Or like, you know, um, it's try all the things yeah. and figure out what parts of the little things that you like, because just because that final result is where you want to be, you may still end up there. Well, oddly enough, my, um, my graphic, my independent graphic design teacher from high school reached out to me, um, well into my career happening in Toronto and asked me if I could talk to her daughter about, um, like her future. Oh, wow. <laughs> and cause she wanted to pursue film and stuff like that. And it was really humbling to like, you know, be asked to like offer advice and you know, like I wanted to tell her like, don't go to film school. It's fucking waste of time. And like, you you know, like just go out there and just shoot, get a camera, go fucking just like do all the things that I didn't do and like do it right instead of what I did, you know? But I also said like, you know, get educated, learn the programs. There's so many free applications and so much free education out there on YouTube and shit like that, you could just go and learn and be excellent at, especially with like kids that are 17, 18. In her case, she was like 16. Like she can be a fucking expert at all the things that my, like the people that I need to be experts at are not. She could be a fucking expert at before she even graduates high school. It's crazy. There's so much shit out there for this free. world. 
this world that we live in currently today, that y'all are listening to this on your phones, all this sort of stuff. Like, I remember if I had, I always wonder if I had had access to an iPhone when I was sixteen. Forget like, about the it. The kind of like you, I, different worlds because I think you probably would have done much bigger things than maybe I was doing at the time because I mean I had a video camera when I was a kid and like all I ended up doing was making weird uh you know how like old school uh we'll end on this pathetic story but um you remember old school camcorders they would have like three or four different um digital effects that you could do and one of them would be like almost uh a thermal camera it wasn't but it was like this weird sort of effect and I would make these like terrible because no one wanted to make movies with me I didn't have like uh, I always wanted a group of friends that would do all that shit and my friends they wanted to play baseball and that was about it Mm. Um, or whatever it was Um, so I would make these one person in camera edited videos of me always being attacked by an alien of some sort because that was the I could switch to that camera view and so it would just be like you know 12 or 6 I think I saved that for camera when I was like 16 and I would just be like 16 year old me running through my house falling switching the camera angle switching the 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 filter or whatever it was fucking called at the time and then like "Ah!" and then throwing the camera at myself sort of thing i wish i had those videos still but at any rate the point being is that now you don't have to you have all that stuff at hand and there are times where i'm just like fuck man i wish i was younger and had these things and i think but i have them i have them now why aren't i using them if i could go back to 2007 july 1st when i moved to toronto shit you remember the day well, it was Canada Day. All right, then, yeah, that's memorable. And I, like, it was, it was my first plane ride. It was everything. Yeah, that'll... It was memorable. And I'm, like, I, I went from literally small towns, 700 people, <laughs> to fucking 5 million people. I, I, like, it was culture shock to the fucking extreme. But if I could go back and tell my, like, eager little self and say, don't lose the eagerness, but also don't get caught up in what film schools allure. Like, there's so yeah. many kids that go to film school and they're like, I'm a, I'm a film student. I'm an auteur. There is not a single person in the film industry that looks for a diploma on your wall, a piece of paper that says, I completed film school. Yeah. There is nobody in the industry that cares about that shit. All they care about is what you can do, your reel, what you've done in a resume, just your LinkedIn account now at this point. Yeah. No one gives a shit if you went to film school. They do not care because it's so goddamn blanket. There's no director of photography school. There's no <laughs> editor school. There's no, sweet if there was you know, VFX or color or there's no school yeah. for being a boom operator. You learn these things by fucking doing it. You're not going to learn it in film school. You're going to learn concepts. You're going to learn terminology and shit like that. But you're not going to learn how to be what you want to be in film school. It's very different. Well, I think the, the, the bottom line here is uh, drop out of film school. Um, and uh, if you're listening to this in film school, <laughs> go and tell uh, this you is think super it's, awkward. Go and tell you think it's not gonna it's not doing it for you anymore. And then don't be afraid to drop out because no one gives a shit if you graduated. Trust yourself. Make the right decisions at the right time. You heard it here first. Uh, Dave, thanks, man. We've been trying to do this for, uh, for <laughs> I, it's got to be time. like a year at least now. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, um, you know, we're going to have you back at another point once, you know, everyone else has gotten a chance. We'll, we'll come back and see where you're at in life. But, um, Thank you so much for doing this, man. It's been uh, it's been a lot of fun. And Thanks for I hope, me. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you all like listening to it. And uh, Ian, if uh, you actually did edit this, uh, you could end it right about now.